Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. That was the opening of one of the most famous and important documents ever written, the United States Declaration of Independence, read in Congress on the 4th of July, 1776. From this document comes the foundation of the United States system of government, and indeed democracy, as it is practiced in much of the Western world. Many had fought and died for the sake of the Declaration when it was introduced, and many more in the years since. So what is the Declaration really saying, and where do these ideas come from? Just why is it so important? Consider this line. To assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Much of the declaration rests on this line. So what are the laws of nature to which it refers? This, of course, is an interesting point for debate. We may consider laws of nature those which determine biology, geography and the literal nature of things. The forces of science which form and instruct the functioning of the natural world. But it seems the Declaration is not referring to natural laws in this sense, rather it conjures thoughts of morality, the way things should be. We discussed this idea in episode 45 on moral relativism. This is simply the notion that there is no fundamental morality, it is entirely dependent upon culture and it is socially constructed. So does the Declaration of Independence begin on shaky ground? It asserts that the people are entitled to be seen as equal under the natural laws of nature and of God. So, what are those laws? Who decided them? Nowhere in the Declaration are those laws explicitly laid out, like the Ten Commandments revealed to Moses by God on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. So, to understand the Declaration for what it is really saying, 
we need to understand this idea of natural law. To do that, we need to go back a few years, ironically enough, to England and the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes' most famous work, published in 1651, is titled Leviathan. And in its four parts, he introduces the basis of social contract theory. Hobbes had a dim view of humanity. He believed that the basic human condition, when absent any form of political order, which he called the state of nature, was not a good one. This wasn't because humans are inherently evil, although they can be. Rather, it is more that we are all different. We all have different wants and needs or appetites and desires, and we are fundamentally materialistic. It is inherent to our nature that we want different things, and our primary concern is ourselves. We are not naturally altruistic. Hobbes was something of an atheist, believing that there was nothing more to people than their body and their brain. Humans are just animals obeying the laws of biology like every other living thing. Just as each cell has no awareness of its own place within the wider system, it is programmed only to perform its function within the body. The sum total of all of our cells from which somehow consciousness emerges is equally driven only to follow its natural instincts. Humans are the result of all of that internal programming. There is no greater good or summum bonum to which we aspire, just as all other creatures act only according to their natural behaviour. They don't conform to any way of being other than that which they are naturally predisposed to do. Birds don't one day decide that they'd like to learn to live on land and never fly. Flying is what they do. But as Hobbes saw it, the natural state of human nature is war of all against all, leading to a life which he described as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And looking back through history, it is kind of hard to argue with him. Now Hobbes's perspective may be quite pragmatic but cynical. The difficulty is, we do or want different things and we are selfish in our efforts to get them. There really can't be a greater good to which we all aspire because we are just so different and we all see the world differently. Who is to say what is right or wrong? Nothing can be considered just or unjust because it really depends on your perspective. Morality, right and wrong, desirable and to be avoided are relative concepts. But Hobbes reasoned there is one thing we do have in common, a shared fear of a violent death. You might like seafood, I might prefer beef, but neither of us wants to be stabbed in the stomach. Taking that shared fear of death and violence then becomes a starting point from which we can begin to establish some mutually agreed upon politics that will act to preserve our stomachs from whatever may be thrust in their direction. To do this, we have to agree that we can't all have everything we want all of the time. There has to be some compromise. This means fundamentally giving up some of our natural right to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and to whomever we want. But we can't be expected to do this all of the time, as it is not our natural state. So to help us ensure this compromise, we need to establish a commonwealth with the authority to command people and how they live their lives. The commonwealth acts as an enforcer of the shared covenant and an arbitrator of the shared rights of all people. In exchange for safety and security and the right to enjoy their property and live without fear of a violent death, citizens must allow the Commonwealth to govern and protect those rights, even if it means they must give up some of their natural freedoms. The purpose of the Commonwealth, therefore, is to restrain people from violence, and this is the social contract, according to Thomas Hobbes. The message here is that for society to function, 
the people must consent to giving up some of their rights to the Commonwealth, a central body which holds the power to enforce compliance. In Hobbes's view, a monarch was best suited to this task, but it could also be more than one person. A parliament would also do the job, albeit with more complications. But either way, the central body responsible for establishing and enforcing the law for the good of everyone was the Leviathan. A generation later, another English philosopher, John Locke, would share his thoughts on politics, but they would be so controversial that he would publish them anonymously. Monarchist rule had prevailed in England for hundreds of years. To question the authority of the king and tout the rights of the people was nothing short of treasonous. Hobbes's social contract had established the moral basis of governance in a paternalistic sense, that is, the state decides what is best for you. But it had also painted the people into a corner. Locke offered a different solution. Locke supposed, what if the natural state of nature was not that people were violent and unable to restrain themselves from conflict, but that they were entitled to freedom? Freedom is the most fundamental of all human rights. We are born as a blank slate, totally free to become who we become, subject to the influences of the environment that we are born into. Conflict is not inevitable, but it is a natural consequence of the universal right to freedom. If we are forced to fight to protect our freedom, then we will. From this conception, we are all fundamentally equal, so no one should have a right to decide the limits of freedom for anyone else. Locke wrote, quote, To properly understand political power and trace its origins, we must consider the state that all people are in naturally. That is a state of perfect freedom, of acting and disposing of their own possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the law of nature. People in this state do not have to ask permission to act or depend on the will of others to arrange matters on their behalf. The natural state is also one of equality, in which all power and jurisdiction is reciprocal and no one has more than another. It is evident that all human beings, as creatures belonging to the same species and rank, and born indiscriminately with all the same natural advantages and faculties, are equal amongst themselves. End quote. Rather than freedom leading people to violence and treachery, the state of nature is freedom, and that freedom is so important, so fundamental to our humanity, that we must establish a government that protects those freedoms. In order to achieve this end, it is critical that the government rule with the consent of the people. The following passage is taken from the second treatise of Locke's work, Two Treaties of Government. Quote, if man in the state of nature be so free, as has been said, if he be absolute lord of his own person and possessions, equal to the greatest and subject to nobody, why will he part with his freedom? Why will he give up this empire and subject himself to the dominion and control of any other power? To which it is obvious to answer, that though in the state of nature he hath such a right, yet the enjoyment of it is very uncertain and constantly exposed to the invasion of others. For all being kings as much as he, every man his equal, and the greater part no strict observers of equity and justice, the enjoyment of the property he has in the state is very unsafe, very unsecure. This makes him willing to quit a condition which, however free, is full of fears and continual dangers, and it is not without reason that he seeks out and is willing to join in society with others who are already united or have a mind to unite for the mutual preservation of their lives, liberties and estates, which I call by the general name property. End quote. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? 
The United States Declaration of Independence does indeed borrow heavily from these ideas of the social contract developed a century earlier by the thought leaders of the very nation that they would later usurp. However, it is the key point of difference between Hobbes and Locke that ultimately led to the establishment of the Republic of the United States of America. It was Locke's argument that the government should rule only with the consent of the people, as it is the primary role of government to protect the natural rights of its people to life, liberty and property. If the state fails to uphold the natural rights of the people, it forfeits its power to govern and the people are obligated to revolt and remove a tyrannical government. This is written into the Declaration of Independence with that caveat that prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, but can be usurped in the case of despotism, which defined means the exercise of absolute power, especially in a cruel and oppressive way. It might be worth lingering on that point for a while, but let's save that for an upcoming episode. The basis of Locke's conception of the social contract is freedom. Freedom comes first. Government is there only to uphold the right to the freedom of its citizens, really to protect those rights. For Locke, the origin of freedom was the individual and their body. He said, quote, every man has a property in his own person, end quote. And by using his hands and body for labor over common natural resources, that resource then becomes his property. The role of government then is to uphold its natural freedom and right to that which he has claimed ownership of. This might sound perfectly reasonable to many of you, but to some others it might actually raise an eyebrow. Despite the sovereign ruling at the will of the people, Locke's politic of the natural claim to property leads ultimately to inequality. It was about a hundred years later that another man contributed his thoughts on how best to run a society. This was the French political philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. His 1762 work, The Social Contract, was heavily criticised and even burned in the streets of his hometown of Geneva. But like Locke, many of his ideas were revolutionary at the time, but they're now written into common law. So why was his work so controversial then? Principally, it comes down to equality and the role of the state to establish that by decree. Rousseau, similar to Locke, began from the premise that all people are fundamentally equal. Any differences are primarily physiological and those differences have no particular relevance to the group as a whole. However, through the course of life, many challenges are presented, the weather being one of the most significant ones, particularly for people a few hundred years ago. But in a hunter-gatherer society, those with certain physical aptitudes offer value, as do those with, say, superior cognitive reasoning abilities. In order to survive the hardships of nature, therefore, it makes sense to cooperate and to leverage the different talents that each person brings to the group. The basis of this cooperation must be a set of shared morals and values, but these are natural and intuitive. You hunt the prey, I skin it, we both eat it, we don't steal the food and keep it for ourselves. Over time, we develop enough of these shared morals and values that we've formed a culture, a way we do things, a system that dictates our behaviour. But because what we bring to the group does vary on the basis of our physical and cognitive abilities, our worth is judged accordingly. Equality becomes unsustainable because some people contribute more than others for one reason or another. The result of this, naturally enough, is vanity, contempt, shame, envy, and maybe even greed. 
So in order to prevent the inequality that arises from the unequal distribution of talents, a social contract must be established which more fairly distributes the fruits of labour in society. This is where Rousseau's conception differs fundamentally from that of Locke. For Locke, property ownership was a natural freedom derived from the labour of the individual. The sovereign and the role of the social contract was to protect that natural freedom. For Rousseau, it was the sovereign which should determine property ownership to ensure fairness and equality for all. So while much of Rousseau and Locke's philosophies converge, they do differ significantly over this point, and indeed it's why people were burning Rousseau's books in the street, because they wanted to have exclusive rights to ownership of property. Rousseau thought that the sovereign has such power over the people that it is crucial to establish a way that governs, that results in the best possible form of society. He writes, quote, No people would ever be anything other than what it was made into by the nature of its government. Thus, this great question of the best possible government appeared to me to be reduced to this one. What is the nature of government suited to forming a people that was the most virtuous, most enlightened, most wise, and some the best, taking this word in its most extended sense? End of quote. The central problem for Rousseau was to find a form of government that protected the interests of all people, but which allowed them to retain their fundamental natural freedom. For Hobbes, it was necessary to give up some freedom to the state for the sake of security. For Locke, the state's role was to protect that freedom. But for Rousseau, the state should protect the rights of all equally while sacrificing the least amount of freedom possible. This may be an unachievable paradox, but ultimately what Rousseau leads us to is a state of equality where laws are designed to protect the rights of everyone because that is the most natural form of freedom. It's not every person for themselves, but everyone together for the common good of all. And this he called the general will. As we see in democratic principles today, the general will can never be unanimous. You can't please all of the people all of the time. What matters is that all voices are considered equally. In Rousseau's words, quote, For a will to be general, it is not always necessary that it be unanimous, but it is necessary that all votes be counted. Any formal exclusion destroys generality. End quote. Rousseau was a revolutionary of his time because he advocated for equality for women and a rejection of any form of slavery. And regarding wealth, he wrote this, quote, No citizen should be so very rich that he can buy another, and none so poor that he is compelled to sell himself. It is one of the most important tasks of government to prevent extreme inequality of fortunes, not by taking treasures away from those who possess them, but by depriving everyone of the means to accumulate treasures, nor by building poor houses, but by shielding citizens from becoming poor. End quote. The goal of Rousseau's social contract was not to preserve the rights of individuals to property, but to create a new equality upon the substrate of an unequal reality. He said the social contract substitutes a moral and legitimate equality for whatever physical inequality nature may have been able to impose upon men. It is an acknowledgement that we live in an unequal world, but it is a moral duty to establish equality through politics. The final figure whose work we examine in the context of the social contract is the 20th century moral and political philosopher John Rawls. Rawls' background as a US soldier in the Pacific during World War II is worth noting. 
He fought in campaigns in New Guinea and the Philippines, and there he witnessed firsthand the brutality of combat against a determined, fanatical foe. Rawls joined the army as a Christian and left in 1946 as an atheist, committed to studying philosophy and formulating his thoughts on justice and equality. So from this context, Rawls published his magnum opus, which he called A Theory of Justice, in 1971. In this work, Rawls attempts to address the paradox of Rousseau's social contract by integrating the notions of freedom and equality into a seamless unity, which he called Justice is Fairness. Justice is Fairness, for Rawls, was a way of judging the justice of a practice by examining its impacts from the perspective of anyone who may happen to be affected by it. To do this, he established a thought experiment, which lays the foundations for much of his theory on the social contract and justice. And it goes something like this. Imagine that you had no idea who you were in the context of society, or even what the norms of that society were. You don't know what gender you are, when or where you were born, what your social class is, what ethnicity or culture you belong to, or even any of the physical or cognitive traits and abilities specific to you. You don't even know your sexuality. You also have no idea what type of cultural and political characteristics your society has, whether it is secular or religiously governed, what is valued by society, what goals the society has for its people, what its norms and values are. You are completely ignorant of pretty much everything there is to know about yourself and your society, other than that you are a member of it, and there are others in the same situation. Rawls called this the original position, where the individual is shrouded in a veil of ignorance. It is only from the original position that individuals can begin to make decisions about justice, because as they have no idea where they will fit into that society, they cannot be accused of making decisions which advance their own interests, or somehow benefit them for one reason or another. From this beginning point, we can assume that everyone has an interest in acquiring as much social capital as possible to live the best life that they possibly can. We can think of social capital as the goods available to us to advance our individual desires. These could be economic or educational opportunities, freedom to live in the ways which we choose, or really any form of governance which controls society. From the original position, there can be no bias toward one way or another because we just don't know where we will fit into that society. It is in the interest of everyone to maximise the social capital available for everyone. For instance, it would be irrational to conceive of a society in which women could not participate in the political system because we ourselves may be a woman. Everything is in balance because no amount of social capital will be better than another. We all want as much as we can get. Concepts like envy, greed, favoritism, selfishness, bigotry and fascism are not relevant because we are all in the same place and benefit equally by maximising social capital and could be disadvantaged by an unequal social policy. From this point, Rawls determined that people in the original position would conceptualise justice according to two principles. The first, the liberty principle, which states that each person is to have an equal right to the most extensive total system of equal basic liberties for all. And the second, social and economic inequalities are to be arranged so that they are of the greatest benefit to the least advantaged and offices and positions in society are open to all under conditions of fair equality of opportunity. But in any case, the first principle is always prioritised. For instance, equal rights and liberty are always more important than advancing economic or political interests. 
are all settled on the following general conception of justice to describe the system of prioritisation. Quote, all social values, liberty and opportunity, income and wealth and the basis of self-respect are to be distributed equally unless an unequal distribution of any or all of these values is to the advantage of the least favoured. End quote. This is fascinating because he is saying that certain inequalities are inherent to any system. And so the most just system is one which rebalances the scales towards equality, even if that means inequality in distribution to achieve it. That is to say, the outcome of fairness is the primary end. The means by which this are achieved may be unequal. But that is just in the most ethical conception of justice. Rawls called this the difference principle, and this point is crucial for our further understanding of social justice, and that's the subject to which we turn in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>